Well, Pastor Jim, our lead pastor, um, he came down with something on Friday and said, hey, I don't know about Sunday. I've got a really bad cough and something in my chest. And I said, well, send me your sermon (laughs) just in case. So fortunately for you and fortunately for me, Jim manuscripts out his sermon. So I'm going to deliver it. If you don't like the content, it's his fault. If you don't like the delivery, it's my fault. And you can come back next week, and hopefully he'll be better by then, be praying for him. So um, if you're new, we've been going through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which is the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book of the New Testament. Um, and if you don't have a Bible on your device or with you, you can use one of our Bibles there in the chairs and just turn to the table of contents in the front and look in the New Testament and find the book of Acts and uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20 today. Uh, you can take, um, if you haven't seen any of our previous uh, messages on the book of Acts, you can find them on our YouTube channel. Just search for Life Point, and don't forget the E, Life Point Church of Olympia. You can also find them at mylpcoli.com slash media, and if and if you go to mylpcoli.com slash notes, you can take notes on your phone or your personal device if you don't want to do the old school paper version that's in your program, or if you're watching online at home. Uh, you can take notes right on your device, and when you're done, you can email them to yourself and get them right in your inbox. Well, now that you are comfortably seated, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, read this passage with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. You may be seated. So Jim has titled this message with just one word, extraordinary. As I was reading through this manuscript yesterday, I kept getting stuck on that word. Extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. Turned to my wife, like, how do you say that word? So I'm just going with extraordinary. Extraordinary. So think with me for just a moment. What have you had the privilege in your life to either see or experience that you would describe as extraordinary in the truest sense of the word. 
It may have been a brilliant sunrise, a dazzling sunset, a spectacular view. It may have been an awe-inspiring athletic performance. It might have been an unforgettable musical performance by a highly accomplished musical artist, an exquisite piece of art from the hand of a world-class sculptor or painter, or the birth of a child, or the gracious, compassionate, persistent, sacrificial love of a friend, a father, or mother, a husband, or wife. So think about that. Something that you think is extraordinary. In verses 11 and 12 of Acts chapter 19, we read about extraordinary miracles. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. If you'll bear with me in a bit of necessary clarification, I'd like you to notice those first two words in verse 11. And God. And God. Who would you say is the primary actor in this passage? We could move forward thinking that it's the Apostle Paul. But the author of this book, the book of Acts, a physician whose name was Luke, He wants us to know right up front that the main character is not Paul. It is instead God. Then check out the next four words. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. So when Luke applies the descriptor extraordinary to the word miracles, it sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? Because anything that is truly miraculous is already, by definition, extraordinary, right? Even people who are given to exaggeration rarely use the word miraculous loosely, do they? So what exactly is a miracle? Uh, I've seen a variety of attempts at a definition through the years. The one that I think I like best was offered by an author named Wayne Grudem. He put it like this, a miracle is a less common kind of activity a less common kind of activity of God in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself I'll read that again a miracle is a less common kind of activity of God in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself I like that definition because the sovereign God of the Bible is unlimited in his divine power and might. On one level, we might, we might well be accurate in saying that all that God does may be considered by us, his creation, to be miraculous. And yet there are things that God does less commonly in order to capture our attention and amazement for the purpose of revealing to us something of his nature and character. And then add the thought of, extraordinary miracles to the mix. And if we are paying attention, we will realize that what has happened is something so rare, so sensational, so utterly stunning, so entirely beyond human capacity, that only a sovereign, all-powerful God could have done it. He gets, And he gets the credit. He gets the glory. Only then does Luke add five more words. 
so that verse 19 reads, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles were being performed, and it was God alone who was doing them, but the human agent through whom he was doing them was the Apostle Paul. It seems that for the author Luke, the truly extraordinary nature of the miracles God was doing was shown in this, that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. The handkerchiefs and aprons that were being conveyed from Paul to the sick and demon-possessed were tools of his tent-making trade. Paul was a tent-maker. In fact, instead of thinking of a handkerchief that might be neatly tucked into your pocket or of those lame handkerchiefs that have supposedly been blessed by a televangelist, think instead of a smelly sweat rag that a workman might use to wipe the perspiration from his face as he worked in the hot sun. And instead of thinking of your mom's frilly apron she wears as she bakes in the kitchen, think of a tool belt that holds a craftsman's tools. These things that had come into contact with Paul's skin, as they then came into contact with the diseased and demon-possessed, were conveying the power of God to heal and restore. So healing by means of items that have touched Paul's skin is reminiscent, isn't it, of that day recorded in Luke chapter 8, when a woman who had been experiencing a flow of blood for as many as 12 years without hope of healing thought, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I could be made whole. And so making her way through a huge crowd, she did, and she was healed. Immediately her flow of blood was stopped, and when that happened, Jesus stopped in the middle of a throng of people and asked, Who touched me? I felt power go out of me. You may recall on that occasion that Jesus made clear that it was not his garment that had made that woman well, but rather her faith in him. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Her faith responded to what she knew of the power of God. And for that woman, on that occasion, it resulted in her healing. The word Luke employs here, that's translated diseases, specifically points to a class of diseases that were chronic, persistent, and incurable. Those who suffered from these diseases would have, made it, would have held out no hope whatsoever for healing, short of a miracle from God. That day, God healed those who received his touch. So that two things took place. First, the diseases left them. And second, evil spirits also came out of them. One of the implications in this case is that the diseases from which these men, women, and children suffered were the physical consequence of demonic possession. Are evil spirits real? They are. We may be inclined to think that we are too sophisticated, too advanced, too scientifically, scientifically minded to entertain the idea of the existence of a personal devil and actual demons, but the Bible reveals their reality. And the Bible uses the phrase evil spirits interchangeably with the word demons. Demons are fallen angels created by God who aligned themselves under another created angel whose name is Lucifer or Satan. In his rebellion against God, 
and were therefore cast out of heaven and down to earth with him. Revelate the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, hints that as many as a third of all the angels in heaven fell when Satan did. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it is written that John saw an enormous red dragon whose tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Later, in the same chapter, that dragon is identified as Satan. In Revelation and elsewhere, stars are often a euphemism for angels. The vision John saw and recorded for us may well have been a playback of what happened in heaven before the dawn of human history. Demons are rational, powerful, created beings. They possess all the attributes of personality, intellect, will, and emotions. And as the New Testament writer James tells us, they believe in God. He wrote in uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in fear. Demons also understand the status and authority of Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, Jesus encountered a man in the synagogue at Capernaum who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Seeing Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. On that occasion, Jesus rebuked the demon and commanded him to leave the man. So at the command of Christ, the demon had no other option but to obey and depart. Their destiny is judgment in the lake of fire that God has prepared for them. Until then, demons have the malign power to dominate an individual, to degrade his character, to distract him from truth, to deceive and derange his mind to drive him to injury, to disable his body, and to destroy his life. They come against us as Christians to demoralize us, to discourage us, to tempt us to sin. They come against the church by promoting divisions, whether doctrinal or relational or practical, and to hinder the ministry of the Word of God. But, Demons are entirely subservient to and limited by the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So on that day in Ephesus, the power of God over disease and the power of Satan was on full display through extraordinary miracles. Some Jewish exorcists there in Ephesus were watching all that was happening with great interest, which led to an extraordinary encounter. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
In those days, there were Jewish exorcists who traveled all around Israel attempting to cast out demons. You might be saying, Jewish exorcists? Really? Yes, really. As a matter of fact, did you know that exorcists can be found in at least eight of the world's religions, including Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, even voodoo and Scientology? Luke introduces us to a particular group of Jewish exorcists. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. The seven sons of Sceva. In last, in last week's passage, we met a group we called the Ephesian Dozen. Let's call these guys the Sorry Seven. Why sorry? Because you kind of have to feel sorry, sorry for these guys and to wonder how effective they ever really were. So sometimes I think there should be warnings over a select few of Bible passages that say in bold, all uppercase letters, don't try this at home. This is one of those passages. It seems that having observed the ministry of Paul and the power and authority of the name of Jesus, they attempted to simply add the name of Jesus to their bag of tricks. And we might say that their beta testing went rather badly for them. It didn't produce the result they had hoped for. It didn't earn them the prestige they so desired. They approached some people who had evil spirits and addressed the demons. I adjure you, or command you, or order you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Make note of that. The very words they used reveal that they themselves had no personal knowledge of Jesus. They'd only heard Paul speak his name and witness miraculous results. They had no personal relationship with Jesus, no real awareness of his character, power, or authority. Don't miss what happened next, something they may have hoped would not happen. A demon answered them. A voice came out of the man the demon inhabited, but it was not that man's voice. I wonder how often they actually experienced that. I wonder how that sounded. In that moment, it got all too real for the sorry seven. The voice of the demon made two statements and asked one pointed, revealing question. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Let's think about that together. Recently, in sporting news, it was announced that Tom Brady of the New England Patriots and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers fame announced his retirement again. To date, he has played in the NFL for 23 years, the longest career for any quarterback in NFL history. Along the way, Brady's teams have played in a record nine Super Bowls and won seven of them. It would have been six if they had given the ball to Marshawn Lynch. But I'm not bitter. He is the all-time NFL leader in wins, pass completions, passing yards and passing touchdowns, including postseason appearances. He has over 700 career touchdowns on his resume. He's appeared in a total of 15 Pro Bowls and holds three NFL MVP awards. It's no wonder that he is called the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Second on several ranked lists of the greatest quarterbacks of all time is Joe Montana of the 49ers. Not far behind him are names like Peyton Manning, Johnny Unitas, Drew Brees, Dan Marino, Terry Bradshaw, Roger Staubach, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, Bart Starr, and others. So whether or not you agree exactly with the order, those who are familiar with the NFL will acknowledge that those names deserve to be there in the rarefied air. 
among the best of the best. Others like Patrick Mahomes are currently in the process of making their way up the list. This is kind of like what the demon is saying to the Sari Seven. In the spiritual realm, Jesus is universally known. He's the goat, the greatest of all time and all eternity, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But somewhere behind him in the rankings is the Apostle Paul. Paul has a presence and a reputation in the heavenly hall of fame. But who's this dude who's attempting to command them to leave their host? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? We've never heard of you. Who do you think you are? You're nothing more than a pretender, a wannabe. And the man whom the evil spirit was inhabiting suddenly and without warning leapt on them. Luke says he mastered all of them, meaning that by his attack, the one with the superhuman power of a demon gained control over all seven, beat them into submission, ripped the clothes off of each of them, and sent them packing, publicly naked, publicly humiliated, bleeding and wounded. Remember that the earlier healings and exorcisms were performed through the hands of Paul, but the power was the power of God. The sorry seven neither knew nor believed in Jesus, nor were they operating in the power of God. They possessed neither spiritual power nor spiritual authority. Only those to whom Christ grants authority over demons have the ability to do this. Paul understood his authority to cast out demons is part of his credentials as an apostle. Notice then the extraordinary impact of these events on the residents of Ephesus. News must have spread quickly throughout the city and the surrounding region. Extraordinary impact. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Luke tells us that fear fell upon them all. They were all seized with fear. A power was among them that they had never known. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was reverenced, held in high honor. But this power, but this power encounter of the advancing kingdom of Jesus with the kingdom of Satan was not yet complete. After healing and exorcism came deliverance. Ephesus had a widespread reputation as a center for those who wish to learn dark magic and occult practices. It shouldn't surprise us then that Paul's most thorough treatment of spiritual warfare against demonic forces can be found in his letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. On that note, notice what was happening meanwhile back at the church, that it was the new believers in Jesus. Not only were they confessing their occultic practices, but they were divulging them. What's the difference in this case between confessing and divulging? Confession is acknowledgement of sin and an agreement with God that it really is sin. It's seeing our sin the way God sees it. But what about divulging the very practices? 
Well, in Ephesians 5, verses 11 through 12, Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus and he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. To divulge sin is to expose it, to reveal it. In those days, the city of Ephesus was famous for what was known as Ephesian letters. It sounds kind of sounds like written correspondence, but that's not what is meant by Ephesian letters. Instead, they were written charms and spells that were enacted by the use of amulets and talismans. It was understood that to divulge a charm or spell or an incantation was to break it of its power and efficacy efficacy forever. These charms, spells, and incantations were kept in secret books, and it was these that they were divulging. So they brought these books, these Ephesian letters, and very publicly threw them on a huge bonfire so that they were destroyed. Now notice what Luke says at the close of verse 19. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver in that day represented the wages of one day's work. So let's consider the monetary value of what they burned in today's dollars. One eight-hour day of work at minimum wage is $125.92. Multiply that by 50000 and that comes to a grand total of $6,296,000. So what do we find? Seized with fear and awe at the power and authority of the name of Jesus over the power of sickness and disease, over the power of Satan and his demons, they confessed their sin, divulged its dark secrets, repented of their evil practices, and they relinquished significant financial investment. I can't help believe that, believing that their repentance also meant the severing of long-term relationships that were detrimental to their new obedience to Jesus. And it's not hard to imagine that they also gave up whatever status in Ephesian society they had earned through their occultic practices. And that led to an extraordinary advance in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All of this gave clear evidence of the genuineness of their conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. And it didn't stop there. What happened in Ephesus led to more and more conversions. Don't miss that when it was the believers, it was the believers, the Christians, who confessed and repented that the mission and ministry of the gospel was freed and allowed to advance with power. So I'm going to ask you this morning as we close, what is a right relationship with God worth to you? What are you willing to relinquish in order to gain Christ? Jesus once said in Mark 8, 34 through 38, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, is it possible that you need to confess and repent of secret practices, secret relationships, secret sins that may just be holding back the advance of the gospel through your church? What are you willing to relinquish for the sake of Christ? Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for your word. And it's easy sometimes for us to forget that these things we read about actually happened. To real people, real events. But we're grateful that we get to read about it because we see the way that your word can spread among the lost by your people. That you use us, God, to carry your word into the darkness. And I pray that each one of us who calls ourselves a Christian this morning will examine ourselves, will ask ourselves, am I viewing myself as an ambassador for, for Christ? Am I living my life in a way that doesn't hinder you using me? for the advancement of your kingdom. God, help us to view ourselves differently. This life is not our own. The days are numbered. We're not promised tomorrow. And there are people around us who we come, each one of us come in contact with, who don't know you, who are lost, and are facing an eternity without you if we don't open our mouths and talk to them about Jesus. God, use us. Give us opportunity as individuals and as a church. Give us opportunities to be your light in this city. Use us, God. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.